Hey, I'm sorry, I'm getting my phone ready here to record this sermon. Um, how's everybody doing? My name is Josiah. I'm one of the pastors here on the staff. And uh, no, I'm not typically the one preaching on Sundays, which is why I'm fumbling around with my phone. Um, but uh, I got asked to preach today, and so I'm more than happy to do so. Man, what a week we had, right? Um, and I pray everybody fared well through the storm. You're here. I'm so happy about that. Uh, we missed service last week, and we don't often cancel our services, but of course um, it was necessary, so I'm so glad to be back together this morning um, with you guys. Even in the midst of everything that happened this past week, I wanted to say I'm so encouraged by what I saw around me, uh, specifically within the church here. Uh, Pastor Ryan and I were talking this past week, and he made a comment to me that said, he said, Man, I've been seeking out ways that we can help and serve, and just there's no needs left to be met. And I was so encouraged by that. Um, Thank you, church, for your generosity. Thank you, church. Um, As far as I know, the needs have been met. If there is still a need, um, if if anyone here needs something, please let myself or Pastor Ryan know after service, and we'd be happy to put a crew together, get done whatever we need to get done. It is this type of generosity uh, that is a characteristic of the church. It is a characteristic of the church now and for the early church that we have in our passage. We are a people forged together, a people brought together. The early church, it was the same. It was this kind of forging that produced a single-mindedness for them. But what was it? What forged them together? If we look back, we've, we've been in Acts now for a few weeks, and we're going through the first two chapters, and very beginning of Acts, Jesus is with his disciples and he has them gathered there. Before he ascends into heaven, he promises the Holy Spirit and he instructs them to go wait in the upper room. And they do, and on the day of Pentecost, they're there in the upper room. The Spirit comes as Jesus has promised. Immediately after, Peter stands up and he gives a sermon. He proclaims the gospel. He calls all listening to repentance. And the Bible says that 3,000 souls were saved added to their approximately 120 beforehand that were a part of this first church. And so there are 12 people with the responsibility of caring for and leading and caring for the souls of 3,100 people. You and I thought we had it tough, and I can't imagine what type of feeling everybody was having in this moment, but the Bible here clearly says that they devoted themselves, and I can only assume almost immediately, Right? It's painfully obvious to me that the thing that forged everybody together was not a thing at all, but a person. It was the person, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, that gathered people together, that forged this type of unity. Peter said to the crowd, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. See, God, in his divine wisdom and his perfect love for us, he sees us who are far off and he runs after us to capture us in order to give us what we need. He sees us from afar off, sees what we need the most, runs after us, gets us, and gives it to us, it being himself. If you think of the story of the prodigal son, 
right? There's a son who goes to his father and he asks for his inheritance and he leaves and he squanders it all and he finds himself at the end of the story eating from a pig trough and he thinks, what am I doing? The benefits with my father are far greater than what I can get on my own, obviously. So let me just go back. Even if he won't call me his son, I can still reap the benefits of being with my father. And he's walking back and his father sees him from a distance. You know the story. He runs out to meet him and he embraces him with a thud as if to say, you're mine. And he puts a ring on his finger and he puts a robe on his shoulders and he kills the fatted calf and he holds a feast for his son. Why? Why does the father do this? Surely it's not because he believes that what his son needs the most is all of these gifts. No, the father knows what his son needs is his father. And he needs to know that he is his father's son. The gifts were just proof of that reality for him. Our father gives us the Holy Spirit as a gift. Himself. He gives himself to us. And in giving himself, he brings us together. He forges a unity with us and for us. The Spirit pours out. It draws many together. It poured out. It drew many together. It still pours out. It still draws many together. What's the first thing that the believers did? The Bible says they devoted themselves. Here in verse 42. They devoted themselves the, some translations use this in the literal translation of this word of devoted is it's a continual devotion. It's a continual steadfast devotion. It wasn't a one-time instance. But they continually devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. If we read this as is, the signs and the wonders, the radical generosity, even the salvation stories, they all came as a result of the people devoting themselves to these things. That's how the Bible lays it out for us. But let's continue to lay the groundwork a little bit. Who, who are they when we say they devoted themselves? And there's two mindsets we can have. I understand that most of us here are familiar with the story. Um, and... We can have two mindsets when we approach this, this story today. Uh, not exhaustively. There's probably others, but two, I think, big ones. And one is, is this. Yeah, that kind of stuff is amazing. But that's not, that's not for me. That's for the Christian elite, right? Ain't nobody got time for that type of lifestyle. Of course, I love God. God knows I love him. But he understands my life is busy. That's a great ideal, but it's not reality. Second mindset is this. That kind of stuff is amazing, but that's impossible. If that's what Christian living is about, I'm nowhere close. I can't, I can't even stop looking at porn, much less see these realities in my life that I see here in Scripture. If that's Christian living, I'm a failure. And God wants nothing to do with me. Guys, both of these mindsets, if we approach it that way, is, they're moralism. Okay, you're, you're either good enough or you're too bad. And you're, you're counting on yourself in all this. Your eyes are fixed upon what you can do and not what Christ has done for you. There's no one here this morning that's too good or too bad for the gospel to penetrate your heart in order to see the results and the fruit and the realities of the gospel take place in your life. There's no one here that the gospel cannot penetrate the heart of in order to see the realities of the gospel come to fruition. Guys, these were Christian infants, newborn babies in the faith. Them, in their frailty, devoted themselves to God. Even the the disciples, 
They couldn't depend upon themselves, right? It's, it, it, they didn't huddle in a room and compile and put together all of the teachings that they remember Jesus teaching them in order to come up with a great plan that the church was going to look like and what it was going to do. No, they're sitting in an upper room in utter weakness and desperation and the Spirit of God fell and dropped upon them. And it turned a weak, frail man into a mighty preacher. It saved 3,000 people in one moment. And it drew all people together. It showed the reality of a community and a fellowship that had never been known before until this moment. This fellowship that we see here was divine. It was a divine fellowship. In his very construct, it was based off and planned off the fellowship that God has with himself, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, all in perfect union with each other, all gloriously outpouring themselves for each other, no lacking, no boasting, no need. This is a type of fellowship that we see demonstrated here. And it is this fellowship with this God that we celebrate. So, Real quick, there's four rhythms we have as a church, and we've been unpacking these for the last few weeks. Um, these are rhythms that we believe all Christians, um, all followers of Jesus should be living in, um, and they are, uh, the first one is celebration. It is, says this, in response to the gospel, we will be a people that sing of the grace and the goodness of our God. This is the God that has always existed in, um, in before time and space. He always will. The one who created all with a word and upholds the universe with the word of his power. The one who is all beauty. He's all goodness, all loving and all just. He's an all-consuming fire and he is a refuge for us. He is both transcendent and imminent. We celebrate this God. The second rhythm is connection. That in response to the gospel, we will live in such a way that we connect the story of people's lives to the story of God. That we as God's creation are called to live for God, but we cannot because of our sin. So God comes in the form of his son to earth in order to bring us to the Father by dying on a cross, rising again from the grave in order to show us and bring us to the fullness of life so that we might live for God and not ourselves any longer. And I want to say that, I think this is important, it is my belief that is, uh, um, what you believe, your understanding of these first two rhythms, celebration and connection, that will determine how you live out the next two rhythms, community and contribution. Community says, in response to the gospel, we will live our lives in the context of deep and authentic community. And contribution says, in response to the gospel, we will leverage our time, our talent, and treasure to further the mission of God for the glory of God. I have a pastor friend who used to say, you don't have a sin problem, you have a belief problem. And what he means by that is that Everything we do is determined by what we believe. And let me give you a couple examples in that. If you believe that we are just a mere product of evolutionary achievement and that we're just a glorified accident and that there's no such thing as human sanctity, then you have no problem killing an unborn child. If you believe that money is a pathway to happiness and if you just hustle hard enough and you stay on your grind and you will achieve it, then of course it is yours and you can do whatever you want with it. If you believe that God is love without anger, if you believe that Jesus is good but he's not Lord, then you will abuse his mercy and you will cheapen his grace. If you believe that the church is just a time and a building and a space and it's not the people of God purchased by the blood of Jesus, then you will use her when she's... Um, when she's uh, um, when she's useful to you, and you will disregard her when she annoys you. 
What I mean is that if you believe the gospel and you believe in the God of the gospel, celebration and connection, then you will live like you do in community and in contribution. As one of your pastors, I want to ridicule over and over again the false notions there are of what the church is. We are not an institution for others to look at and say, what a great organization. Now, we can see this maybe in uh, what Roman Catholicism has become, but also in Protestant churches, even in ourselves. See, if you agree with me um, in this, as Americans, we have all in, in us this kind of built into our DNA, this desire to build something for ourselves to make something great. And we're willing to put on the front end the blood, the sweat, and the tears, to, to, to spend the time and the countless hours in order to make it happen because we know it's worthwhile and we're going to get something from it. We're gonna, it's eventually, we're going to see the fruit of our labors. We're going to start working less, enjoying more of the time we spend in doing it, i.e. retirement. And it's, I, don't, I don't believe that we've necessarily taken and um, transplanted this type of mentality from culture into the church but rather, we as a whole have become so apart and accustomed to our culture that we just allowed our mentality towards Jesus' church to go unattended. And like a vine, its branches have grown around every doorpost and pew and steeple, and now we must do the hard work of trimming it back and seeing what Christ has called his church to do and be. Jesus did not say, make a life for yourself. Did he? Did Jesus say, go make a life for yourself? No, he said, lose your life. If you would, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn with me to the uh, Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, to chapter 9. I just want to show briefly three different parts here where Jesus calls us and the cost at which he calls us. Luke 9, starting 23. Everybody there? Say yes. All right. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Move over to same chapter 9 into uh, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes, and holes and bir- foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another, I will follow you, Lord, but let me, first, let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. One final portion, Luke 14, same book, a few chapters later. 14, verse 25, starting verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We are not part of an organization. 
We are followers and disciples of Jesus, and he demands our all. The cost is high. And he demands, if you call him Lord, come after me. What does this look like, though? Well, first we need to understand this, that there's not a single thing that Jesus did in his earthly ministry apart from the leading and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we as his church ought not to be so arrogant, right, to jump ahead, right, and and say that, well, that's good for Jesus, but there's things that I can do on my own, right? No, there's not a single thing Jesus did apart from the Spirit of God within him. And so we must know that you cannot follow Jesus apart from the Spirit of God. And if you follow Jesus, the Spirit of God will reign over your life. So for the remainder of our time here, I just want to share three things that I think they're all, they're found in verse 40, 42 here of the passage, and we'll, we'll kind of look at the rest of it. Um, three things that um, are evident in the life of someone who has the Holy Spirit reigning over their life. The first one is this, a love for God's word. A love for God's word. Now this isn't a cop-out answer, Right? Um, if, if this seems too simple to you and say, okay, I got it, you know, I know I need to read my Bible more. Um, thanks for reminding me. I, I know, um, it's not a cop-out answer. It's, it's the truth. It's the very truth. There will be a love for God's word. It's here, right, in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They continually devoted themselves to what the apostles taught. Now, if it was possible for every person to have their own Bible in that time, I promise you they would. But they devoted themselves to the teaching of of the apostles so that they may know and learn what Jesus taught, so that they may know and learn what God, who God is and what he calls them to do. They knew that they needed this. And if it's too simple for us, then Jesus' words for us are, you must become a child. You must become a child. If you've outgrown this simplicity, then you must become a child again and have eyes of a child and to see that you cannot go any further than God. You have to know God. I can't promise you that every time you open your Bible, you're going to have this revelation right? And you're going to have um, all of the results that you really want in your life. But I can promise you that apart from reading the Bible, you will not know God. And if you do not know God, you will not know what he cares about. You won't care about the thing God, things God cares about. The second thing is this, that we see also in verse 42, they had fellowship. When the Spirit of God reigns upon our lives, we have fellowship. Um, this is not like a, a superficial Um, sentimental type of fellowship. It's not this fellowship that's named after the hallway and church buildings. It's not, you don't gain fellowship by just when we ask you to turn and shake hands with each other on Sunday morning. It's not sentimental or superficial. This fellowship, the word here is koinonia. I don't know Greek, okay? I just, this is important to understand here. That's why I'm saying it. So don't, I'm not that smart. Um, Koinonia is the first time this word is used here in the New Testament. Okay, meaning it's not in the Gospels. The first time we see this in the New Testament is right here. This is a new type of relationship. It means deep association, a true communion, a close relationship of which the highest earthly example is marriage. True fellowship is deep. It is vital for us. Since Jesus has brought us together, the bonds are unbreakable. 
Since Jesus is, and with his spirit has forged us in a relationship, the bonds are unbreakable. What that means is that you don't just have fellowship with people you like and get along with. Right? Fellowship is not having a great conversation over a pint of beer or a cup of coffee. I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things. Please have more conversations, enjoy each other's company, but let's not minimize it and say like, well, I have fellowship. I, get, I hang out with people that, you know, and we have great friendship. That's not what the Bible is saying here. No, well, actually, fellowship costs something. True fellowship costs us something. What happened when the, earthly, um, when the early church devoted themselves to fellowship? Uh, if we look in verse 45, they sold their stuff and they gave to those who were in need. When they devoted themselves to fellowship, they ended up just selling the things maybe they really liked in order to make sure the needs were met in the church. Think of no greater example than Jesus. Second Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Philippians 2, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But no, what did he do? He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death upon a cross. Fellowship is gained through giving and sharing. Paul uses an example um, in 2 Corinthians 8, the same uh, passage we just wrote, and a little bit later, he's talking to the Corinthian church, and he says, the Macedonians, they gave uh, beyond their means. And there was this wealth of generosity on their part. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by his will to you and to us. 1 John 3, I think, probably has the most straightforward answer as to why this is important, and I want to read this for us. 1 John 3 and we'll start in uh, verse 14. It says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Hmm. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But by this we know love that he, Jesus, laid down his own life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's needs, uh, goods, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This passage is so straightforward for us. How do you know you're a Christian? You love the church. How do you love the church? You, you give up your life for the church. What, is that, what am I saying? Am I saying you quit your job and you come volunteer for the church, you know, for the rest of your life? No. But there is a devotion that we ought to have for each other because the bonds that have brought us together are unbreakable. There is nothing we have that we cannot expend and, and sell and get rid of in order to meet the needs of each other. Because we know how much we have been given, we can give much. What happened when the early church devoted their lives to fellowship? 
verse 45, uh, 44 and verse 45, again, they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Isn't it funny, though? Here, 10 out of 10 times, guys, when we're generous with what God has given us, with our resources that we're never lacking, 10 out of 10 times, I guarantee it, when we trust God and we're generous with what he has given us, we're never lacking. Isn't it funny that when we take Jesus at his word, we're never disappointed? It's the truth. And the the church here saw it. And I've seen it. And we've seen it. Do we desire to see it more? The third thing is this, right worship. When the Spirit of God reigns over your life, you will see right worship. um, Here in... um, In Acts, he says these words, um, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. For the sake of time, we're just going to kind of uh, summarize that as as right worship. Um, There's so much to say within this, but um, the point is this. The church is and was always committed to worshiping. Make no mistake about it, that we're here this morning to proclaim and celebrate no other name but Jesus to worship our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We've committed ourselves to breaking the bread together, to taking and sharing in the Lord's communion together. We've committed ourselves to sing prayers, to read prayers, prayers of hope and courage and faith, joy and sorrow, perseverance and heartfelt pleas. We have done so to lift up our adoration to our Father in heaven through the work of his Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the words of C.S. Lewis, you know you were going to get one quote from me on C.S. Lewis. We don't come to church to be a church. We come to Christ, and then we are built up as the church. If we come to church just to be with one another, one another is all we'll get, and it isn't enough. Inevitably, our hearts will grow empty and then angry. If we put community first, we will destroy community. If we put community first, we will destroy community. But if we come to Christ first, and submit ourselves to him and draw life from him, community gets traction. That's so important. What happened when the early church devoted themselves to worshiping together? Verse 46. Day by day, attending the temple and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What happened? when they devoted themselves to worshiping together, God showed up. God showed up. He added to their number. He saved more people when they were devoted to these things. In closing, I want to just, um, I want to say and, 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 and agree that these things are not easy. Right? So we, we can say that, we can admit that. It's not like, okay, now go, do it. Easy peasy, right? Now, these things are hard. I've seen a struggle in, in even some of you of the struggle of being a part of community because life is busy. Life is hard. And how do I step into community and give up these other things? How do I actually believe that God will take care of me? I don't have enough. I'm in debt up to my, my ears. I don't have enough to be able to give back. How do I trust that God will come through if I'm generous with the little that I have? And I want to say that I know it's hard. It's hard, but it's worth it. 
when we commit ourselves to the good and the hard work of continual fellowship with each other, God will produce a harvest of righteousness in his church. I'm promising that. I'm, it's not my promise. It's, it's God's promise. We put our trust and our faith in him. We'll see radical generosity in our church. We'll see contentment in all things. We'll see gladness and happiness. The Bible here says they had gladness. They received everything that they were given with happy hearts. We'll have favor with those that are far from Christ. God will give us favor. In all your frustrating conversations and all of your moments where you, you, you want to reach out but you feel like there, there's just a wall. I'm not saying that's going to break down in a moment but God will give you favor when you're trusting the leading of the Holy Spirit. And God will save. We'll see a city saved by the power of the gospel that's working in this church. I believe that wholeheartedly. This is all because we live like we believe what the Bible says is actually true. We live like we believe it. We're not just a Bible-believing church. We're a Bible-living church. Heard that said, and I think it's corny, but it's true. We're a Bible-living church. We believe what the Bible says, and we live it out. G.K. Chesterton says this, Christianity, this is such a good quote, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. I want to leave you with a question um, before we share in communion. And Ben, you can, you can prepare to come up. Um, question is twofold. Who are you a disciple of? I don't think the question is appropriate to say, uh, uh, are you a disciple? I believe we're all disciples. We're all following something and someone. Who are you a disciple of? Second part is, how are you discipling others? Because you are leading others. You are discipling others in one way or another, whether you want to admit it or not. Somebody's looking to you. How are you discipling them? We, we've seen this morning that being a Christian means being a follower of Jesus, i.e. a disciple. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, then you're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And if you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, you will point people to the risen Son of God, Jesus. Because that's what the Spirit does. That's his work. He points to Christ. The ultimate result, may we not um, get past this here, and may not overlook it, the ultimate result here in the, in the passage with the early church is that people were saved. God added to their number day by day. That's the ultimate result, is that we would see those who are far from Christ, our neighbors, our friends, our family, our coworkers, come to know Jesus. But it comes through this devotion, not apart from it. We have a big job before us, church, to show how Christian fellowship is actually um, better than anything else, any other type of community. To experience that and then to show it. Community is better than isolation. Contribution is better than um, consuming things. We can show that to the world. Jesus is better. He always is better. You know, this storm this past week gave us a really good gift. uh, Without the distractions um, of AC and internet, everyone was outside. Everyone in my my neighborhood was outside. I had conversations with people I've never had conversations with. God gave us this really good gift when he removed these distractions, you know, for ours. And I'm I'm praying that we don't just, that I don't just slip back into this this self-indulgent lifestyle 
where it's like I close my door and this is my refuge and I don't want anybody to interrupt it, either the physical door, the literal door, the, um, or the, you know, the metaphor, the door of my heart and my mind and my life. I don't want to close that door. I want to live a life that, that says, Jesus, you're better than just consuming. C- contributing and following your ways is better than just consuming things. Living in community is way better than isolating myself, regardless of how hard it is. I'm trusting that you're better. I'm trusting that you're better. Let's stand to our feet. Uh, Ushers, would you come and uh, prepare to serve us in communion? It's such an appropriate word, communion, right? We do this together. And we've made this a habit. We've made this a, um, a part of every week of our service that we would come together and we share in the Lord's table together. This moment um, is for the church, for the followers of Jesus to come and remember anew and afresh what Christ has done for you. And we do this with celebration, guys. You know, often I think it's appropriate to be solemn in this moment, but other times it's, it's so appropriate to be celebratory. It's so appropriate to celebrate and have smiles on our faces, to look at each other and say, you know, praise God for what he's done. Sometimes it's awkward when we rub shoulders and we bump into each other, and I know it, but it's all part of it. It's all part of being in communion with each other. And so as we come to the table, when we have that mindset, understanding of what we're doing, and that, so it's not just ritual, right? We come and we take the bread, symbolizing Christ's body broken for us, and we dip it in the cup, symbolizing Christ's blood that was shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And then if you're new with us, we just file down the center and then back out around the side. If you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not a disciple of Jesus, guess what? You can be. Guess what? Jesus says, come to me. He says, come to me. Follow me. Will you trust today that Jesus is better than whatever you've been doing or whatever you've been pursuing? Will you trust that Jesus is better? You can trust his very word. And if that's the case, then come, take communion with us. May this be your first declaration publicly that yes, I do trust Jesus is better. Come and take in faith uh, what Christ has done for you. Before we do that, let's read this confession together that'll be on the screen here. Do you have that back there? Okay, thanks. Let's read this together. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And the church said, amen. Come and let's celebrate communion together.